Well, hello, friends. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and welcome to December. That means that you have almost made it through 2020. So I want you to hang in there. And as we launch into our teaching time today, I just want to remind you that uh, here at Jericho, we are here for you and never hesitate to reach out, ask for prayer, ask for help, drop by our offices, email our staff team uh, for the type of support that you need. Uh, we would love to walk with you in this journey. Well, last week we started into the first Sunday of Advent with a teaching series entitled Joyful Hope. And Pastor Jenna reminded uh, us as we lit the candles today that Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, is a time of waiting where we anticipate God's divine light breaking into dark places and dark spaces in our world. And that's why we use uh, the imagery and the symbolism of candles, because Advent speaks to that sense of darkness that exists all around us, especially at this time of year, right? We're in the Northern Hemisphere and, and it's dark and there's this nagging sense in our lives that the world is not all as it should be. And so Advent reminds us and actually puts it into our consciousness that we are waiting for light to shine into darkness. And the sense of longing for the inbreaking of divine light into our world, into our lives, is not actually particularly new, is it? If we go back in history uh, to the first century and the first Christmas, and we trace the biographical experiences of the characters in that Christmas narrative, people like Elizabeth or Mary or Simeon or Anna, and today we're gonna to look at Elizabeth's son, John, and we find them positioned at a very, very dark time and difficult season in the history of the ancient people of Israel. As uh, they experienced a living under tyrannical and oppressive political restrictions, they were unable to fully and best worship how they wanted to worship. And they were forced to pay massive taxes to keep a foreign military machine operational. But the Jewish people had been through all of this before. And usually what would happen is that God would send a messenger or a rescuer, a prophetic voice who would speak truth to power, who would shake things up and rouse people from their slumber, who would set things right. And there was a long tradition, actually, of this kind of women and men in the Old Testament. People like Huldah or Jeremiah or Deborah or Jonah or Miriam or Micah or Elijah and Elisha, just to name but a few. These and many prophetic messengers, some of them named, some of them unnamed, would speak with divine authority to kings. They would proclaim to people where justice was left undone and call them to do it. They would rouse people to repentance and they were empowered by the spirit to do amazing miracles of healing. And whenever night seemed like it was at its darkest, God always seemed to send a light a prophet, a messenger. Isaiah, who himself was a towering prophetic figure in the Old Testament, told of a time when a unique or a special prophet would come and would announce the coming of something or rather someone even more special and unique. The arrival of God to dwell in human form. Emmanuel, God 
with us. And so in their time of great darkness, people were searching for divine light. And maybe that's where you find yourself at in this season of your life or your spiritual journey. But it's also easy in times of great darkness to forget and grow discouraged. And so as we turn the pages of our Bibles from what we call the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's actually 400 years of divine silence. So imagine that people are searching for this divine light, but darkness is getting deeper and deeper and discouragement and despair is increasing. But the account of the earthly life of Jesus, the second person of the triune eternal God, as recorded by one of the gospel writers, Mark, begins with a quotation from the great prophet Isaiah about a sign that darkness was about to be broken and turned to light, a sign of hope that would come, a forerunner, a messenger was going to come prior to the arrival of the day of the Lord. And this prophet would allow people time to get themselves ready, to tidy up their lives, so to speak, so that when God showed up, they were ready, they were prepared for God's coming. Kind of like when you give your kids a warning, if you're a parent, you say, hey, we're leaving in five minutes. You need to get ready. And still no one puts their phones down or gets their shoes or their coats on. At least that's how it happens in our house. But turn with me to Mark's gospel, chapter one. And the story of Jesus and Jesus' life begins in this way. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began, Mark says, just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. And today we're gonna to focus on that messenger and his work and the implications for you and me in our work and in our world today. The messenger's name is John. And he's the son of Elizabeth, the woman whom Pastor Wally introduced us to last weekend. Born to Elizabeth in her old age, John becomes known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because of, well, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves in the story. So let's take a look at these opening verses. This quote from Isaiah comes from a section of that Old Testament book, which is often referred to as the Book of Consolation because it contains a number of statements of comfort for God's people because when it was written, they were living in exile, banished from their land in a time of darkness. And so Mark selects a quote that speaks of a voice crying out, declaring an imminent end to their suffering, that God was coming, to set all things right. And then he reveals the identity of this messenger. Let's keep reading in Mark chapter one, verse four. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and he preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all of the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. 
His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and for food, he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, this is a very interesting description, and I say this because if you've ever thought about it, people's appearances are almost never mentioned in the Bible, unless there's a very specific reason for it to be brought to our attention. So Mark must have a specific rationale or reason to tell us that this John guy is out in the wilderness. Specifically, he's at the Jordan River, and he looks like a really scruffy dude. Camel hair clothes, that cannot have been comfortable. A leather belt and his diet, gross and disgusting. Grasshopper-like insects and wild honey. I mean, the guy does not particularly sound like a really good messenger for the Almighty. He sounds like a little bit of a scruffy, around the edges, loose cannon kind of dude. But in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we read another physical description of another prophet, the prophet Elijah, who is also said to have been super hairy and have a leather belt around his waist. So Mark is making this direct connection and linkage back to one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And in fact, in the first century Jewish world, there was a widespread belief that prior to the arrival of Messiah, that Elijah was going to come back again. And so John is actually inserted in our minds as the new Elijah. Camel hair and wilderness living are back, baby. And the other thing to note here is that John is intentionally connected with a particular geography, in this case, the Jordan River. Biblical scholar Dr. Rhodes in his book, Mark as Story, notes that, quote, for the Israelites, the Jordan River signified the end of the Exodus journey and the entrance into the promised land. And this image's strength actually spurred some first century Jewish prophets to attempt to hasten liberation from the Roman Empire by leading their followers down to the Jordan, and they would actually enact the Jordan River crossing. By mentioning that John's baptism took place at the Jordan River, John's actions are linked with this kind of threshold experience in Israel's history. End quote. In other words, those who go to the Jordan to be baptized by John are reenacting or imagining or anticipating the inbreaking of the rule and the reign of God and the freedom and liberty that comes with that. It's a powerful image. And all of Judea, it says, is going out to John. All of Jerusalem is going. People are flocking to John and they're asking themselves, is this the one that we've been waiting for? I mean, his dad, Zechariah, is a priest, you know. Have you heard about the circumstances of his birth? They were absolutely miraculous. His mother was barren. She conceived him in her old age. I mean, look at the guy. He looks just like Elijah. Listen to his message. I mean, this must be the one that we are waiting for. Many people in John's day tried to saddle him with that kind of weight, but John knew his place and that his place was that of the messenger, the preparer of the way, not the Messiah himself. 
But think about how tempting it would have been for John to actually maximize all of those parts of his ministry. I mean, all of Judea is coming out to him for his powerful teaching ministry. He has street cred. He's got this connection to the temple. He's taken a Nazarite vow. He's got this linkage in people's imaginations back to Elijah and to the Old Testament. So John, in some ways, forms this perfect connective tissue between the Old Testament and the New, the Old Covenant and the New. In his one hand, he holds the law and the prophets, this call to repentance. And in the other hand, he holds the task of preparing for the coming of God into the world. And he could have just held that and, and made himself much and had a big following and a big ministry, but John actually knew his place and his role. He was a messenger. He was a way maker. He was a truth teller. He was a road clearer, but he was not the one. Look with me at John's self-understanding in verse seven and verse eight of Mark chapter one. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater, I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One will come, John says. One who is coming will fulfill all of God's promises. He will liberate the captives. He will immerse people in the power and the presence of the Spirit of God in a way that has not been known. God is coming, John promises. But until God comes, we wait. We spend time in the wilderness. We do the work of repentance. We get our hearts and our lives ready. But one of the reminders of Advent and one of the exceptionally frustrating things is that God does not show up on our timetable in ways that we want God to do so. Like Pastor Wally reminded us last week, God often is in the business of surprising us. And if you take the story a little bit further, you turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter three, not written by John the baptizer, another John, the disciple of Jesus. And the story of John the baptizer actually continues. And it's not really an up and to the right narrative. You'd think, man, this guy's all of the city and all of the country coming out to him. He's incredibly popular. But John keeps doing his thing, baptizing people. And now we read that Jesus, the Messiah, has come onto the scene. And John actually baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And now Jesus' disciples are also baptizing people. And remember, baptism is a sign of cleansing, of cleaning up. It was the way that people said, I want to be free from guilt and shame in that tradition. And I wanna connect with God in a meaningful way. And so John's disciples begin to notice a law of diminishing returns. See, they're working hard, they're baptizing people, and now there's some competition that's come into the religious market. And this Jesus guy is pretty impressive. And he starts to gain more and more 
and more followers. And John's disciples say in John chapter 3, verse 26, uh, John, I don't know if you paid attention to this, but everyone is going over there instead of coming to us. And here's where we need to pay attention to John's response and actually think carefully about how we might emulate it in our own lives because John actually understood the goal. The goal of the work that John was called to was to connect people with God. The goal was not necessarily for them to connect with John because John actually had the target set in the right place. He could celebrate the win even when he himself was not experiencing winning because the team was winning. And so he says to his followers in John 3, 27, a reminder, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how I plainly told you I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. John's joy actually increases as he and his ministry decreases. He says, he, Jesus, must increase and I, John, must decrease. Think of the humility necessary to utter that phrase with joy. John, we understand, is one of the greatest prophetic voices in the scriptures, and yet he sees himself simply as a humble recipient of grace. One of my friends uh, was a significant Christian leader and church planter, and he came actually from a very wealthy and very well-connected family. And he and his wife uh, adopted several children. They planted a church in a very challenging neighborhood that has a thriving ministry. And yet whenever he would introduce himself in person or in online space, his bio would parrot the quote from D.L. Moody, and he would say, I'm just one beggar telling other hungry people where to find bread. The guy had a list of accomplishments on his resume and talents that would and could impress anyone. And yet he continually chose to take the path of humility. He continually chose to say a little bit like John did, hey, all I have, I have received it as a gift of grace from heaven. It's a good lesson for us, friends, and I want to ask you about your own life. Maybe this Advent is a good time for a humility check up or check in. See, some of us like to spend this season kind of filling our Christmas cards with our accomplishments and taking victory laps as we look at the, what other people have done or not done over the course of the calendar year. And putting good stuff on your Christmas card is not wrong, but sometimes the tone of it can come off as a little bit smug. Look at how amazing I am slash we are. Look at how smart our kids are. Look at how obedient our dog is. Look at how many of the amazing places we visited. 
okay, well, I guess that wouldn't really be a thing in 2020. But John's life exemplifies a different path for you and I to walk out, and it's the pathway of humility. It's the path that chooses to say, all I have, all I have received is a gift of God's grace, and so I choose to hold it loosely, and I choose to give it generously. And the picture that John uses for this is a really helpful one because it's from uh, something that we're largely familiar with, and that's a wedding. And John essentially says, hey, uh, let's talk about a wedding. The wedding is not about the best man. The best man has one job to do other than holding the rings usually, and that is not to upstage the bride and the groom. The best man is there to make the groom look good. That is your job. Your speech, your suit, your moderate alcohol consumption at the reception is also that you can stand with the groom and bear witness to those vows and let the groom and the bride enjoy the beauty and the sacredness of that moment. And friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have one job, and that is to make Jesus look good to conduct yourself in such a way as an individual, and then also for us as a church community to conduct ourselves in such a way that Jesus is the focus, that Jesus is made much of. And when we begin to lose sight of that, when we start going around kind of tooting our own horn, wanting people to know and to notice how amazing we are, what a great Christian we are. Just look at all of my wonderfully staged Instagrams, pictures of me and my Bible open, my full journal. Like we can begin subtly to place the focus on us and not on Jesus. You have one job in this Christmas season, and that is to make Jesus and the message about Jesus greater and greater. And often to do that, you and I actually need to become less and less. Not in a self-deprecating or unhealthy kind of way, but in a way that just amplifies the person and the ministry and the wonder of Jesus. See, no one goes to a wedding to see what the best man is wearing. No one cares. The wedding is about the bride and the groom and about the vows. And if you ever get invited to be part of a wedding party, you have the wonderful privilege to bear witness to the beauty and the sacredness of that day and that moment. And so, friends, this is your job. This is my job. This is our job this week. And so I want you to pause for a moment and just think, what might you be able to do this week to make much of Jesus? How could Jesus increase in your life? And where might you need to decrease in order for that to happen? Maybe for you, this might be in the realm of finances, and you might need to take a little audit of your resources and spending over this season and think, hmm, I've kind of spent all my money on me. 
And perhaps in this season, your invitation from God is to learn to be generous with what you have, to give to God's work in the world in areas of justice and mercy. And so I want to remind you about our Christmas blessing project and the mission partners, and you'll be getting a postcard in the mail from them that would help you maybe remind and be reminded of that. Maybe for you, uh, you're gonna do a little bit of a reputational audit. See, sometimes we can spend a lot of time and get very focused on managing our image and our reputation. We become obsessed with what we look like and we forget, are we actually pointing other people to God? Romans uh, chapter 12 talks about, we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We should exercise sane and sober estimation. And so maybe for you, it's actually thinking about how you speak. Maybe you need to guard your conversations a little more carefully and not brag so much about your accomplishments or your degrees. Friends, my goal for us here at Jericho in this season, my goal for myself, and my hope and prayer for you is that we would walk out a path of humility that we see modeled for us so clearly in the life of John the baptizer. His ministry diminishes, and yet he experiences deep joy because Jesus is made much of. He knows that the purpose of his life, all he has received is to bear witness to the one who is greater than him. And I trust that you and I will have the humility and the grace to do the same in this season. I'd invite you just uh, wherever you're watching, just to close your eyes and I'm gonna lead us through a prayer. This is a prayer by Anne Siddall and it was posted on the Still Point Spirituality website. It's actually connected with uh, a foot washing ceremony, which is a profound moment of humility. Let's pray together. Oh God, if only it were otherwise. If only I could present my credentials, show my record of service, get some kind of unlimited pass. In every area of my life, I am more used to proving how adequate I am, presenting a polished image, gaining certain privileges. But you, Lord, you bring me down to where you are kneeling and you take hold of the feet that I prefer to hide. We're here together, God, near the ground. And in this humble position, I am touched by you and I am made clean. We are here together, near the ground, touched by you we are healed and we are made clean. Well, friends, as we move into a time of responding in worship, you may want to actually respond with a physical posture because we're embodied creatures. And so the, one of the songs that we're gonna sing actually talks about 
kneeling. And kneeling is just a very profound expression of humility. And it may feel odd, it may feel awkward, so many things do in these days and in this season, but you may want to be invited just to wherever you're at, spend time on your knees, actually singing these songs as a declaration with your body of the intention of your heart. Let's sing and worship together.